Good morning, Desabreeze. We'll be reading the letter from Paul as he was in prison to the church in Philippi, verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, Desert Breeze. How are you guys doing? I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so, so much. Uh, we're continuing in our teaching series through the book of Philippians called Rejoice in the Lord Always. And I must apologize as we get started that uh, today's subject is probably not very relevant to most of you. Joy and frustration. Who's frustrated? Man, what a time that we're going through. But I want us to see today that the picture of joy in Philippians shows us that Paul is not focused on his circumstances, but he's focused on the one who guides him in joy through his circumstances. In our series, if we look at it, each of the subjects that uh, we're going to address in this series Suffering, conflicts, duck points, sacrifices, working out our salvation, anxiety, discontentment, neediness, they can all be frustrating, can't they? The word frustration is sometimes used synonymously with the word defeat, like our battle plans were frustrated and the enemy defeated us. And I know many times that we all feel defeated when our idols disappoint us, when our goals are blocked, when the way we think things should go don't, when the way we think God should answer prayers and he doesn't, we get frustrated. When we're faced with the reality that we're not ultimately in control, we don't like it. Frustration builds. So could it be that we've been Trusting, putting our hope, and even gambling our happiness and our future on something other than Christ and what He has to offer. That song that we sang, that my Savior tells me that my strength is small and my heart is made of stone, that's an indicator of a danger that we have in responding to our circumstances in a frustrating way. My frustration began almost 58 years ago with my first dirty diaper. I couldn't change it myself. And I'm sure in years to come when I am at the end that my frustration will be in a dirty diaper. Today, I'm probably going to say some things that must frustrate you. 
But I want us to all see how glorious an opportunity we have right in the middle of our frustration because of our frustration to meet with Christ and let him invade our hearts and make us whole through the process of working through our frustrations to find joy in it, not to be glad about it, but to find joy in the midst of it. Frustration has a range of temperatures. It's kind of an in-between emotion, but it's only a few short steps away from full-blown anger, full-blown depression, full-blown hopelessness. Because the further away I get from what I want, the hotter my internal temperature gets, and I go from, I'm just frustrated, to I am frustrated. Doesn't that happen? So when our attitude goes unchecked, when we forget the gospel, we have this attitude that adds to our frustrations, thinking that it's okay to think that I want to live in a world that I get what I want, when I want, how I want it, where I want it, and from whom I want it. It's this little kingdom of self in competition with everybody else's little kingdom of self. And we frustrate one another. But it's also all of our little kingdoms of self in competition with a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God and what he decides. The Apostle Paul has plenty to be frustrated with, doesn't he? The church in Philippi was uh, his first church plant in Europe. Tells us about that in Acts 16. The people were dear to him. Ray talked about it last week, about how the affections that he had for them come from way down deep inside. And I resonate with what Ray said about his affections for this church and how thankful he is. I am so thankful. All of our pastors are so, so thankful for your faithfulness that we've been able to get through this. We are getting through this. But also when I think back, there's been so many blessings that I've uh, been uh, uh, honored and uh, get to be a part participant of. I've seen little kids in kids' church grow up to be uh, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ as adults. But I've also seen the heartbreak of little kids growing up and kind of going their separate way and being like the prodigal son. I've had the privilege of doing marital counseling and seeing people come together and build a really healthy a happy relationship that, that brings children into it and they grow into a family. And many of you are here right now. Uh, but I've also seen families fall apart and disintegrate. And that is heartbreaking. We, we've seen children born and be dedicated, but we've done funerals. People have lost loved ones, even children. And that is hard. And the reason why I point out this, this out is because uh, when you do church, there are relationships and there is a thick and thin of those relationships. We did a, a teaching series a while back called uh, A Mess Worth Making. <laughs> it's healthy relationships. But in any case, God has to be the one that we look to for his power, his loving, wise control of what's going on, but at the same time, we as leaders of the church, as pastors and elders, and even uh, leaders and volunteers, and you church family, we have to have some skin in the game. We have to have some skin in the game because that's how you get through the thick and thin of things, and Paul had some skin in the game. 
He had some endurance. He was invested in a a community of people for Christ during a very difficult time in a very difficult place. The church in Philippi was not a friendly community to the church. It was a community, it was a Roman colony known for its patriotic nationalism, and it was heavily populated not only by retired military Roman soldiers, but a whole community of people who were sold out and dedicated and loyal to their king. And they were resistant to the point of beating Paul and putting him in chains and chaining him to a Roman guard to uh, his message that there's a new king, Jesus Christ. And so he had some skin in the game. The resistance was heavy. But Paul's response was what? Philippians 14, uh, 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Would you say that Paul might have been justified in his frustration if he were to respond in frustration? Sure. It was injustice. People need Jesus, but they still crucified him. And it would make sense. But instead of being frustrated, he goes on doing this, encouraging and discipling and investing himself into the unseen work of God. And he proclaims, my imprisonment is for Christ. Translated, I'm not frustrated. I'm in chains. Praise God. It's for his glory, not mine. And it was contagious. And as I studied through these accounts, I was very convicted that I have no real clue of what real persecution means, what real oppression means, what real resistance means when it comes to my freedoms to live out my faith in these United States. And even what we're having to deal with now, it doesn't even come close. And it pales in comparison to what Paul was going through and his church was going through. And even some churches here today, the, uh, you know, in the nations across the world, they're getting their heads lopped off. That's not happening to us. Yet frustration is built, is, 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 is growing in the church and outside of the church. Just look around. And the things that we're being asked to do, in light of the freedom that we get to be here on this Independence Day weekend to worship God, to sing his praises, to hear from his, his spirit, and to be with his people, all these things that we're having to deal with are little. Well, no, they're not. I'm not saying they don't feel little, but in light of what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ, yes, they are little. Yes, they are. But like you, I am frustrated. And so is everybody else. Raise your hand if you like wearing masks. I didn't think so. You're just weird back there. (laughs) But Paul asks the all-important question in verse 18. He says, what then? How are you going to respond? What are we to do with our frustration? And before we ask that question, I'd like to pray together. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are sovereign over all. And we forget that sometimes. Help us through your spirit and the conviction of your word to help us not 
forget that. We are certainly crystal clear that we live in a frustrating and fallen world with other frustrating and fallen people just like us. But we know by looking at the cross that you are faithful. You are all loving, all wise, and in control, even, about, even in horrible circumstances. God, forgive us for so often showing our sinfulness by pushing you aside and wanting to be in control. Help our minds to understand why we are so unreasonably unsettled, even under your mighty hand. Renew our minds and transform our hearts through your word and your spirit, please. Knowing that you have made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of time and the boundaries of our dwelling place, that we should seek you and perhaps feel our way toward you and find you. We praise you, God, that in you we live and move and have our being through Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we thank you and beg you for your presence and sanctification here today. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So what should we do with our frustration? Fill in number one is to dig up the unhealthy root of your frustration and fertilize it with the gospel. Dig it up. Fertilize it with the gospel. It seems as though Paul had an indication of some of what the brothers were troubled about, his, him as the leader being imprisoned. And it would make sense, right? If I told you that I was up here because last weekend after the message, the Caesars of this land and the Praetorian Guard of this land came and hooked Ray up and took him off to prison. He's in Tent City right now and he's being beaten and persecuted. We would be troubled, wouldn't we? So it makes sense. But Paul, the one actually in prison, (laughs) he meets them in their frustration, digs away at what they may be thinking because the words he says, they're really, really important. And you can see the subtleties of his encouragement. I want you to know, because either you might not know or you just need some assurance. I want you to know, because it seems like you don't maybe, What has really happened, has really served, has really served to advance the gospel. So I want you to know that it is really to serve, no matter what it looks like, to advance the gospel. Uh, We talked about it in the the first teaching of this series that Ray said that um, joy and frustration, the remedy to that is single-mindedness. And that tells us what Paul's single-mindedness was about. He was focused on the gospel. And in James 1.5, he, uh, God's word warns us against being double-minded. Because with, single, with a single-minded resolve, we will, uh, without a single-minded resolve, we're going to get jerked around by our circumstances. James 1, 5 through 6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. You understand that believing God is not always understanding what he's up to. Believing God is about trusting in who he is, trusting in what he says. Trusting in, in his love and his power and not doubting those things. In his wisdom and his presence. 
we don't do that, it goes on to say, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Either God's in control or he's not. We cannot measure God by our circumstances. We need to seek him in the midst of our circumstances. And in doing that, number two says, use our enemy, excuse me, use what our enemy intends for bad for the advancement of the gospel. If we look to our text in verse 13, it says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is the Praetorian Guard, and the Praetorian Guard was made up of around 4,500 men. And also, he says, all the rest. What does that mean? Well, there were probably other people that worked in the prison, but also in the palace. This was the talk of the town. Everybody knew that Paul was in prison and why he was in prison. And he says, he says, all the rest know that my imprisonment intended to shut me up is for Christ. And I'm not going to shut up because everybody knows it. I can imagine the conversations. It was like Paul was saying, well, I'm in chains and I'm chained to this guy. I'm not going anywhere, but neither is he. (laughs) Right? Can you imagine the conversation? Hey, buddy, wake up. You remember me? They used to call me Saul. I actually persecuted Christians, persecuted the church, and brought them to places like this to be beaten and scourged and persecuted, just like you're doing to me. But I learned something more important. I met a Savior that makes me whole, that loved me enough to knock me off my high horse of religious arrogance and to blind me so that I could see. I could see how much he loves me, how much, what he's done for me. And he can be that for you. Do you understand? So who is the captive here? Right? The Praetorian Garden, all the rest, I'm sure. This letter is reminding the church and so us of his cause for Christ and the love for Christ, his people, and his gospel. So we're to dig up the unhealthy roots of our frustration and uh, use what the, intend, the enemy intends for good to advance the gospel. And number three, use the opportunity to disciple believers to, and to stir up un, unbelievers to believe in the midst of our frustration. Verse 14 says, And most of the brothers, these were believers, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and much more bold to speak the word without fear. Confidence is nothing is not something that we pick off the shelf when we need it. We gain confidence while growing through difficult circumstances. It's called discipleship. And Paul was saying and showing us that these brothers who had, had an encounter with Jesus because of his imprisonment became confident in the gospel. They knew it wasn't the end, the last chapter in the story. And they became more bold to proclaim the gospel. So Paul shows us that their response was not in frustration because he was demonstrating that and most of them were getting it. And they did it with a good attitude. It says that he did it with goodwill and love and that shows that Paul's single-mindedness was becoming contagious. 
But he points out something else in verse 15 through 17 that says, Some indeed preach Christ out of, from envy and rivalry, but other brothers from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. They're trying to frustrate me. And then there's the all-important question. What then? How am I going to respond? What am I going to do with my frustration? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, Paul was not talking about false teachers here because he's obviously saying that he's rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed, and he wouldn't be rejoicing because in all of his other writings in the New Testament, which is most of the New Testament, he warns us against false Christ. He warns us against believing in a, in a different gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, have, have I had an encounter with Jesus? Is he truly my Lord and Savior? Am I confident in my frustration, in my anger, in whatever I'm going through in the gospel? And I be, am I becoming more bold because I'm looking to him? I'm not looking to other things or other people or other solutions. How am I using my Christianity in my frustration? Am I using it to serve myself or am I using it to glorify God and answer the go- uh, and advance the gospel? We all have rivals. We all have perceived rivals, which are the ones that frustrate us the most. In here, there are rival attitudes about wearing masks, not wearing masks, social distancing, not wearing social distancing. Is COVID real? Is COVID not real? There's a rivalry. It's under, underneath the surface. It frustrates all of us. But we need to look to Christ. What then? We need to advance the gospel in our hearts and speak boldly about it and let it unify us, not separate us. Do you think Paul's preaching Christ was probably a little bit frustrating to those around him in prison also? Hey, buddy, Paul, we're in prison here. Don't you get it? Why are you so happy? I'm glad you asked. Boom. Plant the flag of Christ in enemy territory and advance the gospel for those that desperately need it. So what about us? What about us in our perceived chains and and frustrating circumstances? Do we really believe God's word? If you believe that you're being persecuted, do you really believe Jesus' words in Matthew 10 that says, blessed are those, or excuse me, Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are when others revile you and persecute and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus' message to us is the same as Paul's encouragement, but Jesus' Message is a command for us. It says, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Have a good attitude. Don't be fleshy and stinky in your response to your fleshy circumstances. That does not glorify God and it does not edify others. So again, what about us? 
and our perceived chains, are we, are we discipling believers? Are we allowing ourselves to be discipled in the midst of this? Are we showing unbelievers the hope that lies within us? And all this posturing over different versions of statistical analysis and the science of this and that and whether we should do or or shouldn't do, are we posturing saying, well, I'm not going to do that. If I have to do this, I'm not going to do that. And, 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 And even the other things that have nothing to do with COVID, all this racial division and, uh, and all this redefining and self-identifying. We just got done with a series about unshakable identity. All the frustration and, and ill-mindedness and fleshy responses to all this, that's about a shaken identity. Yeah, but it's dehumanizing and, and humiliating. Yes, in the history of all of mankind, there have been wrong things that have happened. Shame on us. We need to own it and take responsibility for that. Well, we don't do it by taking sides, by storming the gate. We, we do it by having humility and bowing down to the cross in Jesus Christ and telling people about him, unifying, discipling one another, encouraging unbelievers of why we have the hope that we have. And all those things, what do we expect from a fallen world? So our answer, what what about us? We need to spend our time encouraging believers and unbelievers right in the heat of the battle. Regarding our peace and our wholeness and our salvation, we need to ask ourselves, who does our response serve? The gospel in me ought to give me a humble confidence that says, go ahead and mess with me. Go ahead and persecute me. How amazing it is to be counted worthy to suffer for righteousness' sake. I will not deny Christ, no matter what change you put on me. I, like you, hate what's going on. Who doesn't? But again, Paul says, what then? Number four, submit to God's process and purpose and promises in finding joy and frustration. Psalm 55, 22, this is, this is after David was, had, had uh, been exiled from Israel and he was, or Jerusalem, and he was coming back and singing this song of praise. Um, um, I'm, uh, that's another verse, I'm sorry. Uh, but it says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Never. He shall sustain you. He will never let you be moved. Our cry seems to be, Calgon, take me away. But God says, no, stay put. Stay right there. Don't be shaken. I am with you. I'm not going to leave you. Cast your burdens upon me. And the word sustain here means he's going to maintain us. He's going to contain us and support us and nourish us and hold us in and hold us up and even restrain us. And he's going to endure our bad attitudes and help us to endure what's going on around us. He is and has to be the rock of our salvation. Isaiah 41, 13 says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. What a beautiful picture that is. 
It is I who says to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29 says, come to me. All who, are, are labor, uh, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying things really stink on the outside. Remember I came down there? Remember that I was born in a smelly manger because there was no room at the inn for me? Remember the things that I endured. I was there, I've been there, and things stink on the outside, and I've been there. Let me give you rest on the inside so you can endure what's going on on the outside. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made to know to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Anything and everything. God is someday going to fix everything on the outside. But in the meantime, until he does, he's going to work on our inside, using the fallen world around us to show us how amazing and sufficient his grace and power really, really is. So let's talk about how God uses frustration and gives us victory in it. Now continue to remember what I said about digging up the unhealthy roots and fertilizing them with the gospel. This is a process that God is bringing us through. And this digging up is not skipping through a field on blue sky days and picking daisies. This is digging up stinky, fleshy treasures that we place in our hearts. It's about reevaluating our interpretive grid, as Ray put it last week. It's about finding out what we're really made of. Our outlook and so our courage and our hope and assurance are a product of the thoughts that we're entertaining in our minds. You remember uh, Proverbs 23, 7. It says, as a man thinks, so is he. Well, Ray already says that. We've heard all that before. Why do you keep saying it over and over and over again? We don't get it. It's obvious by our response and the response of those people around us. So we need to be reminded of that. Frustration is triggered by some cause, but it's not the circumstantial causes that frustrate. It's it's how we're thinking about it. Paul hasn't been defeated. His captives may think so. His circumstances might look as though they are. He has been defeated, but he wasn't because of what was occupying his mind and his heart. The gospel gave him courage and hope and assurance, and it needs to give us that too. Yet why do we sometimes act like our temporal circumstances are the last chapter in the book of our our lives? It's because of what's occupying our minds. Why do we act like we've forgotten that God's, God's mercies are new every morning? That he is faithful, that he is loving and and in control, and he is with us, and that he is the author and finisher of our faith. How we're responding, what does that say to those around us? What does it say about the gospel that we're truly believing and acting out? What does it say about the God that we say in whom we trust? We might say we believe it, but why does our response 
Show people differently. In calm moments, we all say that the gospel is the answer to our frustration. And it is. But it's not in calm moments that our identity is challenged, that our beliefs are challenged, that our resolve to really stand firm in Christ and in the gospel, it's not challenged. Just knowing about the answer is not the answer. The answer to all of our frustrations is to settle in to the truth found in the answer and to physically, emotionally, spiritually, and faithfully invest your very soul into Jesus' gospel, in into Jesus. Do we truly believe that Jesus dwells within us? When he does, the answer in our response to frustrations will show that we can have joy in frustration. And let me talk about encouraging others a little bit. It doesn't do any good to just, you know, kind of throw scripture at people. Because scripture doesn't mean anything unless you truly believe it and they believe it and they're experiencing it. Sometimes we, 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 we take it so lightheartedly and sometimes it's because we're, we feel ill-equipped or uh, we're uncomfortable with people sharing their circumstances with us. And we'll just say things like 1 Peter 5, 7 that says, cast your anxieties on God. He cares for you. I'll see you tomorrow. Let me know if you need anything. Scriptures are equipped at others uh, irresponsibly when they're struggling, yet when we struggle, we fall apart. But the truth is comforting. But it is no more than a bumper sticker if it's not a soul-level experience. God's word is filled with promises and commands. And we sorely misunderstand uh, the promises absent of the commands. To be whole, we need the whole counsel of God. We're supposed to follow Jesus. He's not supposed to follow us. As it says in Matthew 11, finding peace, peace uh, <clears throat> means taking on the yoke and learning. I have responsibility. Yes, God is sovereign, but I have responsibility. Take on the yoke and learn. Make right decisions that line up with God's commands, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you think you don't have what it takes. God is our strength. Our strength is small. His strength is grace. great. His strength is made perfect where? In our weakness. We must realize that God's commands that are intended to inspire our actions and his, promise, uh, his promises that are intended to soothe us and give us confidence are not situational options for us. They may speak to our situations, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All the time. It's not situational. And his words to us, his commands to us, his, his encouragements for us, rejoice in the Lord sometimes, always. Again, I say rejoice. Repentance and humility and obedience, they're not situational options. It's all the time. Let me tell you, show you what I mean by going through 1 Peter chapter 5 a little bit. He encourages the, the younger to be submissive to the elders and then goes on to tell all of us, 
all of you clothe yourself, clothe yourself with humility because for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. There's both commands and promises there. Our posture towards one another and our attitude is really, really important. There's a hierarchy in God's kingdom and in those institutions that he's put in place. The family, there's the father and the mother and the children. There's a hierarchy there. Fall into place. Be submissive according to whatever uh, your place is in that hierarchy. Fathers, submit to God. Uh, Moms, Join with your husband in submitting to God and holding the authority over the children, and they're supposed to be submitted to the children. In the church, it's elders and pastors and leaders and volunteers and congregants. We're all supposed to be submissive to God, but there's a hierarchy in the church that is for the good of the church and to lead in uh, what we're supposed to do. And it's not easy. As Darren pointed out in the announcements, the decisions that we've had to make are difficult and emotionally painful. And why is it emotionally painful? Because you're cared for. Because we love you. It's not easy. Nobody likes it. But we love you. And it's important. But look, let's look at this again. <clears throat> Without a soul-level, all-consuming transformation, we can get bad attitudes. We won't submit to one another. And we miss God's grace in that. And when we do, we frustrate one another. Then we wonder why our circumstances are hopelessly frustrating. I was going to have you turn to the person next to you and say, you're so frustrating, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But don't miss the promises here. There's two promises. God not only promises to give grace to the humble, he promises to resist me when I get prideful. And that's not only in certain circumstances or certain situations, it's all the time. I am to humble myself under the mighty hand of God all the time. Verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That Why? That he may exalt you. God wants to exalt us. When? In due time. Certainly after we've humbled ourselves. And I, I have a hard time doing that myself. I'm no different than you guys. None of us on staff are any different than you guys. Because I've cried out, God, my circumstances are really getting the best of me here. I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting angry at this and that. Why do people have to argue? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do that? Come on, take my problems away from me, God. You're sovereign. Scotty, Scotty, Scotty. Seems like you're really frustrated. You're certainly not being humble. Do you understand that my hand is truly mighty? mighty over all. And like Abraham, go outside, look up at the sky. You see all those stars? You see the planets, the one you're standing on and the one in the sky? I put those in place. I hold those in place. Every person that walks on the planet, Scotty, I give them breath and a heartbeat and I sustain them. Okay. But when? In due time. Right? We must realize that God's in control and we're not. Amen? Okay. We need to be like our Father, don't we? And God is long suffering. But we misunderstand that God is 
long-suffering, and long-suffering is a lesson that we must learn. How do you learn to be long-suffering? To suffer long. With Christ as your Savior, God in control, Him leading and guiding you through your frustration. So back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he gives us more instruction, more command. Be sober and vigilant. It's got to get your head on straight. Stand firm. Be vigilant. Don't give up. It's not the end of the world. That's my call, not yours. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who may, he may devour. That's the enemy's job. He's good at it. He's going to devour us. He's going to use every little tiny situation to make us feel like we're devoured or maybe turn us against one another so we do his work for him. Now is not the time to shrink back. Now is not the time to be attacking one another. Now is not the time to get prideful and wave our banner of what we think. Now is the time to be humble and submissive and and sold out for the gospel and, 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 and repentant and, and with him and unified in the gospel. How do we do that? Verse 9, it says next, resist him. How do we do that? That's him as the enemy. Resist him steadfast in the faith, firm, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. COVID's not just happening to me. It's not happening just to you. It's happening to everybody. And that goes with all the frustrations in this fallen world. And this is why Peter tells us in uh, chapter 4 not to be surprised when fiery trials of many kinds come come our way. And not only have our brothers experienced, but Jesus came down and experienced it himself. It tells us that that in Hebrews 4, that uh, he empathizes, he sympathizes with us in every respect. And in verse 10 in 1 Peter chapter 5, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Casting our burdens on Jesus doesn't mean asking him to take away our problems. It means casting our burdensome thoughts, our nearsightedness, our limitations, and then he will help us get through our problems. That's the suffering for a while. And that's a process. And the process yields some fruit. He wants to perfect us and establish us and strengthen us and settle us. I desperately want that, especially today. So God may allow me to be frustrated so that he can temporarily use those, the process of suffering to do those things. But I have the assurance that I will never suffer eternally because Christ has suffered as a ransom for my eternity. There are good days. And there are joys and bad days. God isn't and hasn't held on out on us. Just look at the cross. We have to trust the mighty hand of God and humble ourselves under it to find all that he has for us right in the middle of our frustrating and suffering. James 
uh, 1.4 says, Let perseverance finish its work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Who remembers the last teaching in the Unshakable Identity series? Do you remember what the title of that was? We're a work in progress. And at times it will be frustrating, but the cross tells us you're worth it. 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 Managing our frustration through God's providence. Let's talk about that. Number five, we must invest our whole being, mind, will, and emotions, even our frustration, into the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. This is what I was talking mistakenly about earlier, Psalm 126.5, where it says, those who sow tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It was David's return from exile from Jerusalem, and his, his, the psalm is about there are seasons of weeping, There are hard times, but God is going to bring us back. He's going to remedy those circumstances, and we will learn that when we invest our tears, when we sow our tears, there will be a season of singing songs of joy. Now is the season that we're sowing reaps, uh, sowing seeds of tears in many, many ways. It happens through our whole lives. Our investment portfolio in this regard um, requires us to invest ourselves in a particular doctrine that we don't like. And it's the doctrine of God's providence, his sovereignty. Number six, the definition. God's providence is the loving, unseen work of God by which he upholds, governs, and orchestrates all things according to his sovereign rule and purpose. We saw it during worship time, Psalm 103.19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God's providence is him acting prudently with foreknowledge. That's what the word providence means, acting prudently with foreknowledge. And so this is closely associated with God's omniscience. His omniscience means he sees everything from the beginning to the end when we can't. We are not omniscient. Culture and false religions have hijacked our imagination and masked the reality of God's providence to become a shallow, convenient remark when things go well and an unpopular afterthought when things don't go well or don't go our way. And we don't like the idea of God's providence when it doesn't line up with our desires that we truly treasure in our hearts. I want you to think about this comment. I'll repeat it a couple of times. Our heart treasures are what we protect with our minds, will, and emotions. Our true heart treasures are what we protect with our mind, our will, and emotions. And if you don't believe that's true, think about conflicts that you've had with other people. We debate and argue and go back and forth, and we use our mind to think about what we're going to say next instead of listening to that person and trying to understand them. And we use our will. We'd rather win than find reconciliation. And we emote in the whole process to try and get our way. We're trying to protect what we truly treasure in our hearts. And sometimes the reality of God's providence hits us in the face when we find out that we're really not in control. And, and even in the things that we are 
in control of, when we come to find out that everything around us is out of control, it still troubles us. And we don't like it. We don't like God's words sometimes when we get fleshy that say, in due time, suffer for a little while. We don't like that, do we? Why don't we like that? It's because we're aliens of this world. We are wired to want wholeness and happiness and reconciliation and love and joy and peace. All those things that God's going to make true in heaven and, and take away all those things that are so wrong in this fallen world. But if we don't invest our thoughts to renew our minds daily in the gospel, instead of casting our burdens on God, we're going to turn away from him and we're going to cast our burdens on one another. And so number seven, we must guard our hearts and watch for indicators of frustration and welcome others to do the same. Because frustration and suffering, it's real. And we need loving truth tellers to help us kind of see those things. Help us to understand that, hey, what's going on in your life? I love loving truth tellers, but usually just when they tell me I'm right. Because we have this nasty problem of playing king of the hill all the time. Like I said earlier, we want things to be how we want it, when we want it, how we want it, and so on. And most of the time, we don't spend our time trying to understand our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who even spends time trying to figure it out? The world tells me to follow my heart. It's interesting because the translation of this term deceitful above all things paints this picture of a hill. But it's not just any hill. It's a hill covered with bloody footprints after a battle. And when we don't get our way, what we want, our fleshly response is to punish others. Those who get in the way of our way will pay the price, sometimes in little ways, sometimes in big ways, but definitely in some way. And so what do we do? We leave behind bloody bloody footprints of those who dare to tread on our hill. And so we need to get good at diagnosing and checking the engine lights, the warning lights, check engine, check engine, of what's going on in our hearts. And And if our bulb is broken and we're in denial about those things, we need loving truth tellers to come alongside of us to ask us those hard questions. And so whether they ask us or we ask us, why am I overreacting or being defensive? Why am I being irritable or sarcastic or shaming? Why am I using a harsh tone or just being grumpy? Why am I being dismissive or making light of a serious matter? Why am I disregarding authority or overstepping authority? Why am I taking someone for granted? Why have I withdrawn from others physically, emotionally, or relationally? Why am I avoiding hard topics or even talking at all or not listening well or ignoring someone when they're talking? Why am I bringing up or using something from the past that I've already forgiven? Why am I belittling someone's opinion or being needlessly judgmental? When we get that way, usually denial is really close by and after denial comes isolation. Because when someone says, hey, what is going on? Nothing. Leave me alone. Right? We do that. It's the slow burn process that breeds frustration that's going on on the inside, and it leads to anger on the outside. James 
Chapter 4 describes it for us in the first two verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Do you see the internal struggle of those treasures that we've placed in our hearts? It says you desire and do not have, so you do what? You murder bloody footprints. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Bloody footprints. You do not have because you do not ask. And it goes on and on and on. And it never works. The problem with playing king of the hill is that even if you win, you're left all alone on the top of a hill with a bunch of bloody footprints that don't matter in the end anyways. For Christians, we're supposed to die to ourselves. And so, for number eight, for Christians who have died to themselves, God's providence ought to be a necessary forethought on good days and on bad days. How do we wake up in the morning? Do we wake up with the thankful thought of God's providence? No matter what I want, God, I know you love me, you're with me, you're, you're for me, not against me, and I'm with you, and I'm for you, I'm not against you, so let's just do this, whatever comes. Right? Do you wake up in the morning and, and sing... I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about me. No, I, I love their worship song that in the morning when I rise, give me what? Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me my sovereign king because that's all I need and that's all I desperately really, really want because that's how he wired my heart no matter what goes on around me. It's what we are to remind ourselves every single morning. Why? Because God's sovereignty is so important and it ought to be a forethought. Because the loss of God's providence means we are here by chance. The loss of God's providence means your salvation is up to you. The loss of God's providence means that he's not in control. And eternity is not guaranteed. And if that's God's plans, he's not all powerful, he's not all loving, he's not all wise, he's not all wise, he's not in control. But he is. He is. Just because you can't see a good reason for why God might allow something that it's happening doesn't mean there can't be one. There can't be a million that you can't see. Most of what God is up to can't be seen, but whatever he is doing can, can, can be trusted. The one problem that I would have that would make me suffer in all my tomorrows has been taken care of. Done. Can I trust God in his unforeseen work for a little while so that in due time he will perfect me, establish me, strengthen me, and, and settle me? Look at right there. Look, the cross. Yes, right there. If we understand God's providence in its purest form with a humble and obedient heart, it could become the most comforting doctrine of all. You being here today, God's providence. Your very existence on this planet, a gift of God's providence. 
that two lives would go on and on and on and then eventually meet and come together in marriage and grow as human beings and grow little human beings in the mother's womb, giving the gift of cherished children and families generation after generation after generation, God's providence. And this means something very special to me. You've heard of the Titanic? A horrible, horrible event. 2,435 passengers, almost 1,500 of them died. And 492 of them lived, but suffered terribly. One of those people, my wife's grandmother. If she hadn't survived, if God's providence didn't make her live, she would not grow up and get married and have children who had children who gave me the most beautiful wife in the world and three awesome girls, and four awesome grandchildren, and I'm sure more to come, I hope. God's providence. The person that led you to Christ, that your two lives would collide and God would orchestrate a moment where your heart would be opened and they would be bold enough to share the gospel and you would accept your, uh, Christ as your Lord and Savior and be saved for all eternity. God's providence. Suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually through any of the horrible things that you've encountered in your life and probably will continue to encounter at some time in some way. God's providence. Bad stuff too? That's really hard to swallow. But yes, again, if we look at the cross, the sickening, grotesque, and hard-to-see reality of Jesus being shamed and spit on and slapped and scourged and nails driven through his hands and legs that he willingly went to the cross to pay the price for you and I that we could not pay? God's providence. I love Charles Spurgeon. I can usually not get through a sermon without quoting him. Um, He said, no life surpasses that of a man who quietly serves God wherever providence has placed him. Charles Spurgeon was a single-minded man who boldly preached God's word uh, and had this single-mindedness. And from the accounts I've read, he suffered through and grew in his single-mindedness and attributed it to the reality of God's providence. I want to read you a couple of accounts. On the evening of October 19, 1856, when 12,000 people were packed inside the Surrey Garden Music Hall in London and another 10,000 were outside, unable to get in to hear him preach God's word. Now, this venue was about the third of the size of America West Arena or whatever that's called today. And and 22,000 people, as it says here, that's about 4,000 less that would show up at an NBA playoffs game. They were there to preach, hear God's word preached. It was, it was, it was, there was a hunger in that community. And in the account it said, inside during the service, a troublemaker shouted, fire! And 12,000 panic-stricken people rushed the doors and piled on one another. Seven were killed, 28 were seriously injured, and many others were hurt. Spurgeon fainted and was carried from the pulpit. It was a huge, huge deal. It it was headline news. Everybody was talking about it. And the shock of it was, this was was a church. What was going on? Who was to blame? Was it the one that shouted fire? Yeah. Was it the one, uh, people that were panicked and trampling? Maybe. But what about God? Isn't he sovereign? What was going on? Well, Spurgeon says that uh, he was restored from his fear and frustration 
And in a future sermon, he said this about the incident, and it was very well known. In connection with that terrible calamity at the Surrey Garden Music Hall, notwithstanding all the sorrow and suffering that it brought on us, so he wasn't denying the suffering, but as we know and look back, we see how God, by means of the calamity and the news of it, called public attention to the preaching of God's word. And I have no doubt that for every life that was then lost, a thousand souls have since then been saved from going to the pit. So let God's name be praised for the gracious overruling of a terrible crime. He was single-mindedness in advancing the gospel. And that was on a massive scale. So what about the, the individual scale? What about the one person? They're important to God too. Here's another account. A poor harlot, a prostitute, determined she would go and take her life on the, on the Blackfriar Bridge. And passing by the door on this one Sunday night, she thought she would step in and for the last time hear something that might prepare her to stand before her maker. The text was from Luke 7:44. Seest thou this woman? And Spurgeon said, I dwelt on Mary Magdalene and her sin her washing the Savior's feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head. And speaking of the harlot, he said, there stood the woman, melted away with the thought that she would thus hear herself described and her own life painted. She never went to the bridge. Oh, to think of, of, a saving, uh, of saving a poor harlot from death and then as God pleased to save her soul from going down to hell. The keys of God, uh, the keys of providence swing on the girdle of Christ. Believe it, Christian. Nothing occurs here without the permit or the decree of your Savior. He that hath gone to prepare a place for us by his presence has prepared the way of that place for us by his providence. God cares. He is providential. He knows what's going on even when we don't, even when we can't understand it. So how does the gospel quench my frustration? Because my frustration needs to be quenched because anything I try doesn't seem to quench it. I'll just read through the last three statements. Number nine, the gospel of Jesus Christ assures me that my past has been redeemed at an expense that I could not pay. That's Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. He, he paid the price that I would be reconciled with God. Number 10, the gospel tells me unsettling circumstances are to remind me I am not in control and that my longing to be free from frustration means I need Jesus. I need him not only to be just my Savior, but my Lord also, just like everyone else. Number 11, the gospel gives me hope for tomorrow and promises me my future is secure because of what Christ has done for me and is now doing in me. And I love the last words that Paul writes in this particular passage of scriptures. And in that, we rejoice. Let's pray. God, we Thank you for your providence, even though we don't understand it sometimes, but in this context, it gives us peace. We thank you for your grace and your power and your love. God, make the reality of all that our waking thought that gives us humble confidence. 
for today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and help the reality of all that give me peaceful rest when I lay my head on the pillow at night. Meet us in our frustration. Meet our nation in our frustration. Quench it with the truth of your word and your spirit. God, please maintain us. Contain us. Hold us up. Hold us in. Nourish our hearts with your truth. Restrain us from our sin. Endure with us and help us to endure according to your long-suffering and loving-kindness. And God, I proclaim Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 in your word that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Thank you, Lord, that in love you predestined us for adoption to yourself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will, to the praise and glorious grace which, with which you have blessed us in the beloved who is Jesus Christ. Please go with us, Lord, as we go from here. Help us to be bold and proclaim the gospel and have confidence in it no matter what happens. It's in Jesus Christ that we pray alone. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend.